Chapel podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We're so glad you're here. Before we get started, we want to remind you of the importance of being connected into a local church body. Podcasts are a gift from God, but are meant to be supplemental and not substitute or replace the gathering of the saints in worship in the word. With that being said, we pray that this teaching would bless you, equip you, and encourage you in your walk with Christ. I will take your prayers this morning for my voice. I'm fighting some allergies, so I'm just thankful that if my voice fails, his voice does not. Amen? And that's what we'll trust in today. Well, y'all, about 14 years ago, um, there's a Christmas story that occurred that I'd like to share with you, and it goes a little something like this. I was upstairs folding laundry. In the middle of doing my duties, I heard the world's loudest crash downstairs, It sounded like a wet thud, and so I flew down the stairs like a condor. I've already told you that I'm really tall, right? So I fly down the stairs, and I come into mine and Jonathan's living room, and what I saw there was absolute Christmas tree carnage, okay? Our live pine had apparently been a bit top-heavy and had toppled to the floor, and y'all, it was a mess. It was a hot, unholy mess. All the 1980s glass ornaments were shattered in shards across the floor. That felt skirt, do you guys remember when grandmas would make a felt skirt the 12 days of Christmas? Well, all the dye from all the felt was seeping out across the hardwood floor. All the heirloom uh, ornaments were mangled. So that was the sight. That's what I came down the stairs to. But that was nothing compared to the sound that was emanating from the corner. Because in the corner was my four-year-old or five-year-old son, Levi, who though he had not caused the mess, had witnessed the mess, and so he was deeply affected by it. And he was crying. And as I approached, I could hear snatches of words between each of the gulps of air. You know, when a kid isn't just crying, they're sort of snubbing, okay? And so between each gulp of air, he was saying a word, and this is what he was saying. He was saying, it can't be fixed. Over and over again, it can't be fixed. And so as I approached him, I sort of tried every mama book in the trick. I I tried to assure him, it's not your fault, Levi. And then I tried bribery. I talked about Legos and candy, maybe even a pet, anything, (laughs) right? To get the snubbing and the sobbing to stop. And on and on it went, it can't be fixed. And so I went over and I scooped him up and I I said the only words that came to my heart in that moment. I looked him in the eyes and I said, oh, Levi, it can be fixed when daddy gets home. (laughs) And with that phrase, y'all, my boy came back to me. He came back to me. There was something about understanding that when a good father one that you know and recognize as good and capable comes home, the thing that is messed up will be fixed. Now, obviously, Jonathan isn't, wasn't magical. He couldn't magically put the ornaments back together. But Levi somehow innately understood that what was so traumatized in here, what was hurt in here, what was terrified in here, what was frightened in here, when the good father comes home, y'all, it can be fixed. The same is true for us. 
This is the great hope. This is the great news of the Christmas story. Hallelujah. So wherever you are today, if you don't hear anything else I say, if there is a part of you that is stuck off in a corner and you are witnessing something that either you caused or you didn't cause, but you are so deeply uh, affected by it, I just want you to hear that Jesus is here today, y'all. He's here today to walk into that place and do what only he can do, bring what only he can bring Y'all, we're never promised to be spared from brokenness, but to be repaired from it, that is the hope of the gospel. That's the great hope of the gospel. That is the euangelion. That is the good news of Jesus, the Christ. So if that's you, know that when dad comes home, when the heavenly father comes home, it can be fixed. Well, I need a way to remember that truth, y'all. I always am looking for a way to remember that truth. And the Advent wreath gives me a memorial, gives me a symbol for my heart, which is so apt to forget, which is so wonky and wayward and wacky. When I look at an Advent wreath or Advent candle, somehow I'm brought back into the great hope, the great news of the gospel. Um, I just want to take like three minutes and give you a bit of a history lesson on the Advent wreath because I find it so interesting. So this might be something that will intrigue your mind. I hope it will. And I hope these will serve as breadcrumbs along the trail that you go then home and see if these things be so. Okay, let's talk about the history of the Advent wreath for just a moment. Advent, that word Advent is actually derived from the Latin word Adventus, which means the coming or the arrival. You might recognize another English word that we use a lot, which would be we're going on an adventure. Yes, okay, the, the root is similar. I love that, that that Latin word advent or adventus means, get this, y'all, I come forward. Isn't that cool? Think of God coming forward, stepping into our world. Now, that Latin word is actually derived from the Greek word parousia, and if you've hung out in circles of Christendom for any length of time, you've likely heard the word parousia. It's just a very fancy word that means the second coming of Christ. It is almost exclusively in the scripture used to talk about the second coming of Christ. What I love about both words, Advent and parousia, is there is encapsulated in the very definition of the word, both the sense of, get this y'all, the coming and the presence. Isn't that great? It's the coming, the coming one who is what? Come. And the presence. And I love that the word kind of is like the left hand and the right hand, and it means both, one in the same. Um, Adventus also, and I love this, y'all, has the sense of one in power arriving. So in the Latin word world, when they would talk about an Adventus, that was actually a ceremony for a leader or a military ruler arriving to the city and then they would throw a kind of a big party. So there is this sense of that, that the Adventist, the Perusia, has this connotation that someone greater than is arriving. And I think it's a beautiful picture for what we're celebrating at the Christmas story. So the Advent for me, y'all, I just reduce it to this. I am waiting on the one who alone can deal with the situation. I'm waiting on the one who alone can deal with the situation who has the power to deal with the situation, who is God so he can deal with the situation, who is God in flesh incarnate so he can deal with the situation. That is the one that I am waiting on. 
For folks that are liturgically based, uh, Advent is technically, I didn't know this, the beginning of the Christian calendar. So it's our culture's January 1 or the Jewish culture's Rosh Hashanah. So for those that are in a liturgically based system, this is actually the beginning of the new year. And I love that, y'all. It reminds me that I don't have to wait for January 1 for a new beginning. Because every, y'all, we are not just Easter people, we are Christmas people. Every day Jesus is born and every day he triumphs over death. This is the reality in which we are rolled, in which we are hidden. And so this helps me remember, oh, every day I can wake up every day, his mercies are new every morning. Okay, when the wreath was first introduced really, really early on, it was used as a season to mark a season of preparation, fasting, and mourning. Get this, y'all, for new converts to prepare to be baptized near Epiphany. And we can't go off down the rabbit trail. We don't have time today to talk about Epiphany. But depending on whether you're in a Western tradition or an Eastern tradition, Epiphany just means that moment when God through Jesus was made manifest to the Gentiles. And so Epiphany is generally when the arrival of the Magi is celebrated. But y'all get this. This wreath was not actually uh, used to prepare for the first coming of Jesus. It was actually used for folks who were saying, you know what? This Jesus is so intriguing. He is so compelling. I want to give my life over to him. But there's going to be a long season of preparation. How seriously they took, y'all, following Jesus and preparing to be identified with him through baptism. Now, in the 6th century, it was used, the Advent was used to celebrate the coming of Christ, but y'all, not the first coming of Christ, but the what? The second coming of Christ, all right? So do you see how this memorial is moving throughout history and, and, and what its symbol is used for changes a bit? And then finally, in the Middle Ages, it comes to be used the way that you and I would most recognize it, which would be a celebration of the first coming of Christ. But when you look at this wreath, I want you to join with historical Christendom and remember we don't just celebrate the first coming, but we look forward to the second coming. Y'all, this reminds us that we live in between the two advents. Um, Karl Barth, who a lot of people consider to be one of the 20th century's great uh, thinkers and theologians, he, he deeply influenced people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, and I'm going to slow down and let his words speak to us from across the, the decades. He said this, unfulfilled and fulfilled promise are related to one another as are dawn and sunrise. Both are promise and in fact the same promise. If anywhere at all, then it is precisely in the light of the coming of Christ that faith has become advent faith. Advent faith, the expectation of future revelation, but faith knows for whom and for what it is waiting. It is fulfilled faith because it lay hold, it lays hold on the fulfilled promise. Y'all, Christ is come and Christ is coming again. The wreath puts all of that in one fell swoop, in one fell memorial, if you will. Now, in the Methodist church in which I grew up, it was a great honor to be chosen as one of the family members to light 
one of the outer candles on the outer ring. You know, the Christ candle was generally in the middle and represented the actual birth. But it was such a big honor to be tapped as one of those families. That, and I can remember in the Methodist church, we had the little, I don't even know what you call it, but it had the wick and you had the little long thing that you would, I don't, okay, okay, I'm the only one that knows what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I'm not describing it well, but I just remember being so freaked out about, oh, would there be enough wick in the flame? But it was a huge, huge honor. And as you might see, as is represented by what we've been doing here, uh, the outer candles are generally, and you'll see it this way, generally represented by deep violet, which these are, or royal blue. Most people believe that's because generally it represents royalty. But then there's this one right here. This weird outlier right here, the third week of Advent, called the shepherd's candle or the joy candle. And it is a real, I don't know if anybody else thinks that, I think this is a really bizarre color for Christmas time. Anyone else? I mean, red, white, and pink, or, you know, green and pink. We don't generally think of pink at Christmas time. There are a lot of um, historians and, and thinkers who've tried to dive into why this candle is pink. Uh, a lot of people believe because it is the Gaudete candle. You want to say Gaudete? Gaudete, it means rejoice you, rejoice you. It's the joy candle. And so some folks think, well, this was a season in preparation where there was just a sense of relief, a sense of joy. And so they marked it differently with a different color. There are other people that say, actually, this goes all the way back to Pope Gregory, who would hand out pink roses during the season of Lent. And of course, if you've, if you've been around Christian circles for any amount of time, you know Lent is also what? It's a season of preparation. It's a season of mourning. It's a season of giving things up. It's a season of sacrifice. And so when the pink roses were disseminated, it was just a moment. It was a breath of fresh air. It was a moment, y'all, it was a moment of joy. And of course, that's what we're going to talk about today, this good news of great joy, which is delivered, of course, to the shepherds, which is why it's called, again, the shepherd's candle or the candle of joy. I want to read a little bit of scripture, and we're entitling this today, An Outfielder's Joy, An Outfielder's Joy. All right, I'm going to read a, a lengthy portion of scripture. I, I pray that the Lord will minister to your hearts as I do. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, that word there is edu, it means be still, pay attention, look closely, all right? Be here now is kind of what that word means. That's what the angel is saying. Look, you shepherds out here in the fields keeping watch over your flocks by night, be here now. Pay attention to what I am going to say next. It says, I bring you good news. There it is, y'all. That's the euangelion. That's the word we use, and you'll see in your scripture over and over again for the good news of the gospel, right? Right here at the very beginning, they're saying, here's the gospel. The gospel is present. Good news of great joy. Now, because this is a joy candle, I just want to slow down for just a moment over this word. 
It's the word Quran. You can, there are several different pronunciations of it. Kara, sorry, not Quran, Kara. And it means joy, gladness, or the source of joy. It can also mean a calm delight. I was reading some of Aquinas' work, and it was really, really interesting. He basically said, this is a bad paraphrase, it's not uh, his fault, but mine. He said that joy is not a virtue so much to be expressed as much as it is an outflow of a gift. Isn't that great? Y'all, joy is not our circumstances. Joy is an encounter with a Savior. Joy is not found in our circumstances. That would be happiness and can be taken and given. It can be transient But what we find in the scripture is that joy is an encounter and an overflow of this encounter with the Savior. So they say, we're bringing you good news, the gospel of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you, for unto you, I love the personal touch there, don't you? For unto you, shepherd in the field. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. That would fulfill that component that Jake taught about. All the the prophetic scriptures out of the book of Micah. For unto you, unto you he is born in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Scholars say that the lying in a manger there is the component that was most important for the shepherds to locate the baby Jesus because most babies would have been wrapped in swaddling cloths, but most babies likely wouldn't have been lying in a manger. So as they go to seek the Christ child, this is that symbol that, yes, he is come. The coming one has finally come And suddenly there was an angel uh, in the multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see about this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Okay, y'all, I just want to make a couple points of, I normally want to say application, but today I'd like to say meditation. I pray that these are things we can take out into our week and in the coming weeks and sit with, mull over, chew on, ruminate, and that's my prayer. All right, first things first. First things first. Whenever a spiritual virtue is mentioned for the first time in Scripture, it has a really special place in biblical scholarship. It's called the law of first mention, okay? So you might go and you might want to study faith, 
And so scholars would say, well, go to the very first time that word is used, and there's something, there's something specifically that we need to pay attention to the very first time that it is mentioned. Worship is an interesting one. If you ever want to go and look at the very first time that word worship is, is, is used in the Scripture, scholars say pay attention because God is sort of uh, forming a holy framework of equally special import, y'all, is who God commissions or who God shows up to first. Scholars say often giving that person or that people group a, a, a special honor. Again, it's like God takes a, a spotlight, right, and throws it onto those folks and says, look, I've, I'm speaking of this to this particular person first. I'm throwing a spotlight on them, and so I want you to pay close attention. It's that sense of behold. What is God saying in this? We pay attention. Um, it's very interesting, isn't it, that after the resurrection, who gets, who gets to see Jesus first, y'all? Who? Yeah. So we pay attention to that. We pay attention to to the fact that the first kind of Gentile evangelist in the scripture is the Samaritan woman. Okay, so we pay attention to that. So what is God doing? What is Jesus doing? He's often, scholars say, bringing honor to people whom have not had honor. So you would think of women at this time. You would think of the Samaritans at this time who, uh, to the kind of the righteous Jewish person, would have been seen as an outsider. So we want to pay attention to who God shows up to first. Well, when the Son of God actually shows up in a manger in Bethlehem, uh, we got to pay attention. Now, if I were God and I were making a birth announcement for my son coming to the earth... Y'all, the three billion people, the three billion people that tuned in for some of the royal weddings would have been nothing compared to what I would have employed if I were the God of the universe announcing my son. Like I would have convened a UN council to say, he's coming and he's here. I would have gone to the powerful, the connected the wealthy, those that had a giant platform, a giant Instagram following, a a giant Facebook following. If I were God choosing how I wanted to get the word out, where I'm not God, and when God chose to announce his son, the coming of his son, to a broken earth, he went to a group of people fairly lowly, fairly uh, outcast in a lot of ways, he went to the shepherds. So I want to take a moment here and just talk about the shepherds as a group of people and then ask the Lord to draw some uh, corollaries for our own hearts. The first thing that the scripture tells us is that these shepherds, they work the night shift, y'all. They work the night shift. They are awake and doing everyday average work when everyone else is sleeping. I've heard it said that in the Christmas story, we need to always remember that God works the night shift. God comes to everyday, work-a-day men out in the field. It's cold, likely, at this time of year, or coldish. 
watching sheep at night. I don't know if you know anything about sheep. You graze during the day. You kind of bring them into a, a fold at night, and you watch them all through the night so that no predators come and steal them away. And so the first thing we need to understand is that, y'all, these shepherds were just normal, average, workaday people. Now, I will tell you that there is some, <clears throat> I'd say, good-spirited, good-hearted debate uh, about the level of their outcast state. There, is some, there are some scholars that think, oh, they were completely outcasts, uh, worse than Samaritans, couldn't give eyewitness testimony in court. And there's some people that would say, actually, they're just a little bit lower on the social strata. Okay, And so I would say that it, it really doesn't matter because what God is saying is that when I announce myself to a broken world, I do not go to the powerful. I go to the powerless. All right? And so there are places in our hearts, y'all, where we need today for God to announce himself to that place in ourselves where we are in the field where we are working, where we think no one sees. That is the good news of the gospel, y'all, and it is so earth-upending. Um, one of the things that is, is, is interesting to me is that the shepherds were likely in a constant state of uncleanness. And you have to kind of dig deep on this, but think about it, y'all. You know that there are all these laws, all these laws to be clean, to go in to worship God, Right? Well, think about the shepherds. Think about the animals that they're dealing with. Think about the leavings of animals. Think about the blood. So scholars will say it would have been very difficult for the shepherds to ever fulfill the laws so they could go into the temple and worship. And throughout the scripture, particularly in Luke, what do you see? You see Jesus constantly drawing in the unclean. Constantly bringing in the ones that can't go inside the temple. Think of the leper. You see? And so we see it reflected here in the story of the shepherds. Uh, I love this, y'all. I love this, and I don't ever want to forget it. It is the overlooked who get the first look-see into the kingdom. It is the overlooked who get the first look-see into the kingdom. I was sitting last night listening to the beautiful story of the work that's going on in Indonesia, and this phrase just leapt off the page and off the table, and it was this, God lives in cemeteries. God lives in cemeteries. Some of the work that they're doing, it's astonishing work of people that live in cemeteries, that make their life in cemeteries, that try to grind out enough sustenance in cemeteries, and my sister is saying, guess what? God lives there. God dwells there. Y'all, the scripture says God what? Dwells. God tabernacles with the poor. This is something that's so easy for me to lose sight of in our Western world where I have everything I need at the tip of my fingers or the scroll of my thumbs. It's the overlooked who very often in scripture get the first look-see into the kingdom. They do. And after they receive the first angelic announcement, they respond quickly. They change out of their robes. I'm sure they have wet themselves with fear. And they go. And they see what the Lord has done and what the Lord has made known to them. Y'all, it's very interesting that the, the scripture says, 
what the Lord has made known to them, they make known. So I want to slow down with that idea for just a moment and ask you the question, what has the Lord made known to you? What has the Lord worked into the soil of your life? What has the Lord kneaded into your heart? And I guess I'm asking um, for something that might be a bit personal, a bit unique to you. If you're a Christian, of course, the most preeminent thing he has made known to us is the gospel, the good news. God is coming incarnate to a broken earth. He will pay our price. He will die our death. He will die upon the cross and he will rise again. That is something that he has made known to us if we are followers of him. But my question is this, what has Jesus really worked into your heart? What do you know? If I were to sit down with you for just a moment and slow down, which we so <laughs> rarely do, we, we chafe against the ministry of slowness, I think, in this day and age. And I ask you, where has Jesus really made himself known? Experiential, embodied. For me, I would say that it has been in the tender area of value and identity. If you were here the last time I talked, I talked about living most of my life bent over. Not just because I was physically 5 foot 12, which I am, but because I was cowed and bowed down by shame. And I spent most of my life desiring to disappear, desiring never to be seen slumping my way through life. It is why I so identify with the bent woman of Luke who finally stands up straight. I was just sitting with this this week and I was thinking, Allison, aside from um, the opportunities where you're able to talk to a group, usually of women, when and where are you making this part of your story with Jesus known? Are y'all... Understanding what I'm saying? It's one thing to present the gospel. We need to always look for opportunities to present the gospel. But we also need to look for those places where the Lord has done something so deep, so miraculous. He's healed something so ugly, so painful that we can take it out and look at it and say it actually doesn't hurt anymore. Amen? It doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean that G Jonathan could put the ornaments back together, but what it meant was when he got home and scooped up his boy, Levi, it didn't hurt anymore. Y'all, I got a lot of places in my heart that don't hurt anymore, actively don't hurt. I got a lot of places that still hurt, and Jesus is coming for those as well, but I got a lot of places, y'all. And so what I'm asking us as a body is to start asking the Lord, Lord, where can I make known what you've made known to me? Where can I look at somebody in a restaurant and, and, and they, we hear something that catches our ear and we go, you know what? I had a place just like that. And this is what Jesus did in my life. Y'all, this is evangelism. This is the euangelion. This is the good news of great joy. 
I, I have had to ask myself, aside from groups, Allison, when was the last time you prayed your way through a day saying, God, give me an opportunity? Anybody else? I've been convicted by that this Christmas season. I've been convicted by that because of this shepherd candle. Because y'all, the minute they see in flesh the good news, what do they do? They start knocking on doors. They start telling everybody that will give ear to them. And they make known, y'all, what has been made known to them. Um, I, I was just going to take a second here. And, and Jake gave an, an awesome uh, plea for the, the Christmas service. You know, sometimes, um, sometimes in the church, not here, I know it's not happened here, but sometimes there's a little bit of good-humored poking and kind of joking about folks who only attend church on Christmas and Easter. Um, I actually think it is a God-given, beautiful opportunity, amen, to evangelize. Y'all, we ought to be like the shepherds who make known what's been known to us, who are like the Samaritan woman who say, come see about a man who what? Told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Messiah? And so what I'm asking, you know, asking of myself, Jonathan and I are new to Knoxville, so this is really a little bit uncomfortable for me, but I've been praying, God, who would you want me to invite? And not because we're inviting them to a church, we're inviting them hopefully to an encounter with a Christ, the risen Christ. And so I've needed the Lord to need this ministry deep, deep, deep into my heart of late, and I hope you will as well. Um, I was pondering this morning, got up early, and was just kind of sitting with the Lord and thinking and praying. And um, at, at my old church, we used to do these Christmas productions, and we we're just average, you know, volunteers putting together something that the Lord's put on our heart. And one year, there was a woman that a bunch of the folks in the cast had been praying for, it was just a coworker, And this one gentleman who was in the play, it was the first time he'd ever done a play with us. He just said, this is the one God has put on my heart to invite to this Christmas play. And um, he invited her and, and she said that, that she would come. And, and as the day approached and the day went on, there was, a, you know how you do, you're in the prayer circle and you're praying, they show up. And, and he was saying to us, we're not sure she's going to come, but we think she's going to come. Okay, we finally got the text that she's on the way. And y'all, they were even out in the parking lot looking for her. She had like a kayak on the top of her car. So they like waved her in and put her in a parking space. They were trying to make it easy for her to come and see this story about Jesus what my castmate, what my friend would tell us later was that that woman had decided that after that day she was going to end her life. And because of what she experienced about Jesus, she decided not to. And so I just want to say to you, this is why the Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord, what? What? Some translations of that are, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. So I pray in the coming weeks we can ask the Lord, Lord, where can we say so? Where can we tell our story? Where can we ask the question, invite somebody to come and see about a man? Good news, great 
joy, good news, great joy. One of the things that's interesting, and I'll close with, with this um, bit here, this, this amount of scripture here, is that the outcast state of the shepherds, the being lower on the social pecking order, is a little bit interesting because if you know anything about the Old Testament, you will know that God himself refers to himself as shepherd. David says of the Lord in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. God takes leaders to task who don't shepherd his people well. And so you have to ask, well, what's going on? Surely they would have remembered that in their own writings, the shepherds were a people to be trusted. They were a people that you would look up to in some way, especially if God is revealed as shepherd. I looked at a lot of scholars, and um, many of them think, and I think this is an interesting um, possibility, is just we forget Human beings forget, don't we? And so we need to be reminded. And so in some way, I believe that when God comes first to the shepherds and the shepherds start knocking on doors and they see the shepherds, it might have been for some people a moment of true epiphany where they went, ah, the Lord is my shepherd. He has come to the shepherds. It's like God is redeeming. Does that make sense? This um, component of being a shepherd. And that, of course, led me to a story in the Old Testament. The king, the man who was a man after God's own heart, and a story in his early life. And we'll close with this. Saul, the first king of Israel, is gone. He's dead. And the prophet, the prophet Samuel is mourning over him. And God asks him a really tough question. He says, how long are you going to mourn over Saul? How long are you going to mourn over Saul? I want you to fill your horn with oil. And we're going to anoint the next leader Maybe you know the story. This is in 1 Samuel 16. If you want to go back, I'm going to try to truncate it a bit. He goes to the house of Jesse. They're going to have a big old meal. One would expect, because the prophet is here, that all the family members are gathered. Wouldn't you expect that? Because one of Jesse's sons is who? It's the next king. And he's sitting there with a horn of oil. He's ready to anoint and the scripture records that child by child, son by son, they pass in front of the prophet. And the Lord keeps saying, this is not the one. And another boy walks past and God says, this is not the one. And another son walks and another and another. And the Lord says, hey, hey, hey. Don't you remember, Samuel, that I don't look upon the what? The outward appearance, but I look at what? See the heart. Y'all, God's got x-ray vision. 
So the parade finally comes to an end, and the prophet, confused, looks, looks at Jesse and is like, are these, is this it? Are these all the sons you have? Because I'm sure he's thinking, because the Lord told me that the next king is here, and yet in this parade, the Lord has said, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. Don't look at his height, not him, not him, not him. And so the prophet goes, is there anybody else? Is there anybody else that you've forgotten in a field? And Jesse has to admit, well, there's there's still the youngest, but he's what? Out tending sheep. You see that full circle moment? Revealed all the way in the New Testament. Don't you think when some, a shepherd knocked on the door, we were, we were out in the fields tending sheep? And an angel of the Lord appeared to us and said, he's been born, he's here. He's here. I wonder if some of them didn't go. The shepherd, the shepherd being called out from the fields, the shepherd being the one who was chosen, the shepherd being the one who is anointed. And of course, Jesus would call himself years later, I am the what? Good shepherd. You see, I love that our God is never just doing one thing. He's always doing so much more than we can ever imagine. He's always reminding us of the truth that he has laced through the pages of scripture, Jesse says, well, I've got the katan. It means the young one, the, the last one. And he brings him in, of course, and Samuel goes, oh, my goodness, it's he. It's the young, forgotten shepherd who is the next king of Israel. Of course, it would be years between the anointing of David and the appointing when he took the throne. So what's the point? For us, there's so many. There's so many. Uh, I take great delight and joy that God sees the outsider, that God calls the outsider, that God uses the outsider, that God dwells with the outsider. That delights my heart because no matter what I might seem like on the outside, on the inside, I've got a lot of outsider on the inside. Does that make sense? And so the good news of great joy brings me great joy that I am called in from my outside state. I want to say to you, if you're here today and you feel like you're on the outside, you feel like you're in the field, you feel like um, maybe when something really interesting happens or cool happens, um, you're never remembered. You're never really thought of. You feel excluded. You feel rejected. I want to encourage you that the Lord sees you out in the field. The Lord sees you. His eye is upon you. I also want to say to you that your human forgottenness may be forging something for you of great worth, spiritually speaking. Your season of hiddenness may be preparing you in ways that you can't yet conceive in closing, I would just say that it might be preparing you by inoculating you from seeing the way the world sees. 
And y'all, I'm not sure we've ever needed a more heavenward view than we need it now. Our world is in desperate need of Christ followers who say prayers instead of post insults, who let go of offenses instead of making a list and checking it twice or thrice, who reach across the divide rather than blowing up spiritual bridges, who turn the other cheek rather than preparing a backhand slap. And y'all, sometimes it is the severe gift, the severe mercy of walking through a season of forgottenness in a human way of thinking that gives us such gifts. Why? Because when you've been forgotten, you tend not to forget others. When you've walked through a season of invisibility, you tend to see the people on the edges in church on Sunday morning. You tend to see the people on the periphery. And then you can begin to minister to them what has been ministered to you. God sees you out there in that field. God is doing something of inestimable worth in your life in those waiting times in Christ. That though you be forgotten by everyone, including your own who? Family. Jesus never forgets. Y'all, that is good news of great joy. That he has come to us in those places. Um, I'm going to do something that I, I don't normally do. Um, and I'll just put it this way. If you feel like a shepherd today, if you feel like you're standing on the outside, if you feel like you've never really come home to the great news of the gospel of Jesus, if you've been sitting here hanging out a while and going, man, he sounds really good. A God who would show up to the last and the least and the forgotten sounds really good to me. And I think I'm maybe just to take, ready to take that step. I just want to say to you that I'm going to be hanging out up here. Jake's up here. Alex is up here. Any of the prayer folks that you saw up here, Melinda and others, Jonathan, you can grab us. And you can say, you know what? It's time to come in from out in the field. Doesn't matter how young, doesn't matter how old. Jesus is here for you today. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for good news of great joy. We thank you for the shepherd candle. We thank you that you come to the places that are excluded, that feel rejected, that feel forgotten. We thank you, Lord, that when you chose to announce yourself to a broken earth, you came to the least. You didn't choose the folks at the top of the social pecking order, Lord. You chose humble and lowly folks working the night shift, working the third shift. That's how you came. What an upside-down kingdom we are invited into. What a glorious king. We thank you, Lord, that blessed are the poor. Thank you that blessed are the meek. Thank you that blessed are they that mourn. Thank you that blessed are they that are persecuted. Thank you, Father, for the good news of the gospel in these places especially. 
and we rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.